Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. You are a subscriber to our app. This is a private podcast where we are going to just talk about whatever comes to mind. But really, we do have a couple topics. Mm -hmm. We appreciate everybody for being a subscriber to the app. Our iOS and Google Play should be live any day now. Google Play is actually live. Um, so you could go if you are on Android and download it yourself. I was waiting for iOS to come out to send a um, mass email to everybody. But for iOS, it's just waiting to be approved. I've looked at the app. It looks pretty cool. You're going to get a new notification every single time we upload. So we can't wait to flood you with content. It's good to know that Google's so fast in uh, their customer service. They are. They are so fast. So the funny thing is, if you literally go to Google and you type in focus compounding, you'll you'll get the app. But the icon is of two women. And <laughs> I spoke to the people that did this. And I literally was like, I don't understand. We've worked together for so long with our podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, focus compounding. In what world does your brain live on where you didn't notice that this is not us. This icon, this stock image you used isn't focus compounding, you know? So I was like, what? But that's where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. It's taking a lot longer than expected, but it looks really cool. And we appreciate everyone being a subscriber. Helps everything we do here. Clearly, we put out content um, and have a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, we just want to make it as best as possible, especially because you guys pay uh, to get exclusive content. Yeah, and that was the whole thing. We've been waiting to have this app Thing that was the whole idea of having a uh, separate paid thing, monthly thing, was that there'd be this app. That's mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we planned it for a long time ago. Yeah, we did. So we did. But once it's out. Yeah. So it's going to be good. And we appreciate everybody um, being a subscriber. So I reread a book recently, King Icon. Okay. It's a very fascinating book. There's not a lot actually about Carl Icon on the internet other than maybe like his, you know, some TWA, Herbalife. I mean, if you ever. Google his name. It's really about Herbalife and his, you know, whole battle with Bill Ackman. But I was actually kind of fascinated to read about his earlier years. Yeah. He kind of comes from the same era of Buffett. I think Buffett is yes. a little older than Icon, but they're not that much of a difference, right. you know, um, two totally different styles of investing. Mm -hmm. Their backgrounds are two totally different type of backgrounds. Icon was... Um, like an options broker. He comes more from yeah. a trading background. All right. And then it sounds like, you know, I don't know if call it the 70s or 80s. Yeah. He, you know, discovered you could buy these undervalued companies. And he comes from Graham and Dodd. He always, even to this day, right. references Graham and Dodd. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, um, you know, you could make a lot of money buying into these undervalued companies and trying to influence management to, you know, I guess you could say change the capital location mm -hmm. in his days, pay him money, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I just wanted to do a, a podcast really on activism. Okay. And, you know, what your thoughts are. There's sort of this, you know, activism is the gentle word, <laughs> you know, okay. it's let's all well, do this. Corporate raider, that, exactly. That was, that was the old word. Yeah. You know, now it's activism. Let's do this all it's together. High yield junk. Yeah. Let's do this all together. Like I don't make money unless the shareholders make money. What's wrong with that? You know, well, we're back in the yeah. day. It was, 
here's, you know, I think his first deal was he invested in the company and, you know, he was just kind of beating them down or whatever, meeting with the board. And then they finally came back and said, we're going to give you $10 million to walk away. And I'm going to give you a list of companies you could actually go do this with. And he was like, where do I sign? You know, mm-hmm. that was his first deal. It was like, he personally made $10 million. Right. I think he was in his early thirties or something. Um, but so, yeah, so that was, you know, Boone Pickens and him, mm-hmm. that was a corporate Raider era. Yeah. And, you know, now it's activism and sort of the stigma has kind of changed in a way. Okay. Yes, they come in, they, you know, could be, uh, you know, trying to make a bunch of changes at the company, mm-hmm. but it's really more so all shareholders will benefit, you know? Okay. Um, so I'm kind of curious to hear about your just thoughts on activism. Sure. So Graham and Buffett both did activism a lot earlier. Graham Northern Pipeline is the most famous example of that, but other things. Uh, Buffett, Sanborn Map is a good example, um, but they both did that in a big way. They chose to do it a little bit differently. Uh, than what we're talking about. Um, for one thing, they bought up a lot more of it usually uh, instead of buying up a small amount and then trying to create a lot of attention for it, which is definitely what's changed now, I would say. I'd say there's definitely a lot lower amount that people buy up of the stock and then try to get a lot of attention towards it and then sell it fairly quickly that way. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Uh, one is there's more sorts of defenses in place. I mean, the strong, the, the strongest defense against takeover stuff is very fast filing with the SEC. So when it changes so that you have to file on SEC reporting stocks within like, a, you know, whatever it is, 10 days or something of crossing 5%, let's say, um, then you're in a lot of stocks, it's going to be difficult for you to acquire a large position before people know about it. Mm-hmm. And that's your best defense for it. There's also poison pills and multi-class um, stocks and things like that, but they're, they've declined a lot. So like in the last 20 years or so, I'd say poison pills have mostly vanished um, and staggered boards and stuff are pretty uncommon. So we've talked about poison pills before and yeah. it was funny because I was like, well, have you ever come across a situation where they've actually diluted that individual? Like yeah. that person would have to be crazy to do that, right? Knowing that you're going to trip it. And you're like, well, I think it's kind of one of those situations where it's like they do it so they don't ever have to do it. I, you have, know? A, I have a theory. <laughs> but that, you yeah. did say that some person did, did do it. And they're like, a lot of times if that happens, they'll be like, like, look, you got to sell us back or something. Like, yes. we'll do, we'll give you a second chance, but yeah. like, let's do this. And then he, he just didn't, is it like he didn't know? He didn't care. He was crazy. I mean, yes. you know, sometimes in these situations, you get so close to these companies where people just, they lose their mind. I don't know. But it's like, I think he interpreted that they dilute everyone instead of diluting him and not the other people. And that's what would make sense. I, I, that's what I, before, like, you know, I guess you could say past couple of years, whatever, I, I thought that's what it meant. I didn't know that you personally, get diluted yes that's what makes a poison pill that's the only way that it's affected that way there are different forms of it um that are somewhat complicated uh i was looking at a company recently um oh i know which one it is uh lubies so mm-hmm. it has a poison pill i don't they're putting it up for a vote again but it has a poison pill that's quite different from others and i think would probably work less well in reality um but it's probably meant to be like a uh it's probably seen as better corporate governance or something, the one they adopted, um, but it might not work as well as some other poison pills if it actually happened. But I don't think it matters because I don't think anyone would trip it. Um, my theory, in all honesty, from looking at poison pills at a lot of companies, especially very small companies, is that they do not know how to implement the poison pill. They can't really implement it. And it would be very messy, result in lots of lawsuits. They would mishandle everything about it. It would cause all sorts of problems for them, for transfer agents. Yeah, like, what do you even do? It it would be a disaster. So it's the belief that it 
could happen, it will happen, it's there, because it completely would annihilate the value, basically, of, of someone doing this, that it, as a result, they can avoid having to actually do it. But I don't believe that normally they're actually set up with the idea that they could carry this out. I don't think it's been planned out well enough in most cases of how you would actually carry it out. So I think in almost all cases, they would tell someone you have to get back below the threshold. But effectively, what it means is that no one will cross the threshold that the poison pill is set for. Mm -hmm. So that's effectively what it means, regardless of how it's actually implemented. There's a whole lot of it in 10Ks and things that you can read, but there's no point in you reading it because all you need to know is what the threshold is and that, you know, because it won't actually happen. That's mm -hmm. the whole defense is that it would be it would be so bad for you that you won't actually trip it, so we'll never have to actually do it. Yeah, I just wonder like what they would do, right? So they you know, they go and issue shares to you directly. They issue rights to you under the normal way that the poison pill works. Yeah, that would entitle you to buy more shares. Yeah. Wow, crazy. Um The effect of it is to give you all more shares while leaving while not giving the rights to someone else. The problem with it, which I said is the issue, is that in reality I think it would be much more complicated because for small companies and things, large numbers of the people don't know they have the shares. Wouldn't get the share the rights. Wouldn't get the rights, things like that. Rights wouldn't be exercised. There'd be all sorts of problems. So I think they you would unintentionally end up diluting many people you didn't want to dilute by doing that. It's not like an automatic thing where you would just have you just say the actual way the poison pill works is not that it says you own 10% and now you own nothing. You know, mm -hmm. even though that's the intent of what it's meant to be is if you put $10 million into a company that has a hundred million dollar market cap, it's now worth 1 million or whatever. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah. But the actual way in which it's implemented is more complicated. And I think would be messy if it actually had to be implemented. But the idea is it doesn't have to be. Instead, you just would stop anyone from buying over a certain percentage. So do you ever feel more comfortable when you look at a company and there's an activist no. in the business? Would you rather there not be an activist? I mean, what are your general thoughts on activism? Uh, generally, I'd rather there not be an activist. Just because you think most are looking for a quick flip? You know, even in listening to Carl Icahn's book, there were some situations where I think he made like, I don't know, I think it was like, I remember being surprised, 20 to 30% is what, you know, his total return was, mm -hmm. like within one year on a position. Right. But I was thinking, I was like, gosh, all that work for a one year return of 20 to 30%, you know, again, right. a great return. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, all this fighting and banging your head against the wall and now your reputation. You know what I'm saying? I was just like yeah. surprised. I, I really was. It's not like they were making like 200% in a year or something like that. You yeah, know? that's true. Yeah. It is on correlates the market though. Sure. You know, yeah. something that you're doing separately and you can take a very large position. You know, that's what activists do. I mean, to be honest, I don't, there's academic stuff about stuff. I think all the higher returns in activism come from concentration. So I think if the activists didn't do anything active, they'd still get the same returns basically on average. I think they help their, I think their actual activism and the expenses associated with it often do as much harm as good. But the fact that they concentrate on a very small number of positions with the analyze in great depth explains most of their returns. Mm -hmm. So I don't really believe in the idea that the activism itself is what actually achieves anything. I think if, you know, Bill Ackman or whatever spent all the time he did studying railroads and stuff and then bet big on a railroad, I don't know that it necessarily matters if you, if you are actually carrying out the activism to change things. I doubt that activists, um, with some exceptions, uh, know enough to make changes that would be positive. And modern activism almost never. Buffett and Graham both did. But mm -hmm. they had the same basic idea, which is very easy to do, which is to change the capital structure. And that works. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's 
fascinating because a lot of investors, they come at it from an investor standpoint, right? They're not operators. And that is two totally different skills. Right. You know, putting somebody in to be a CEO or whatever, you know, so let's say you, you acquire a massive stake in the company. I mean, that's a two totally different skills. Right. You know, and then they, you know, they come into it thinking effectively they'll put the right person in place and, mm-hmm. you know, be able to make all these changes. I'm kind of curious, why do you think Buffett, because he was an activist, yes. right, in his early days. Mm-hmm. I guess you could even call him a corporate raider. Now, he didn't mm-hmm. take green mail, but, you know, yes, change the capital a, structure. He and, and, he a corporate raider. Yeah. They're both true. Yeah. You know, so I'm kind of curious, why do you think he stopped doing that? Uh, I think because of the, um, well, a few things. One, I think because of the reputation things. He didn't mm-hmm. like the criticism and the confrontation and things like that. Yeah, because people in Dempster Mills, that town, hated yeah. him. Yeah. And he, I think that psychologically kind of messed with him. The yes. whole town hating him. Two, I think it became easier to borrow to do these things. So once there were junk bonds and stuff, then Buffett wasn't going to be involved. Um, because I think it made it too easy. Um, he made money by coattailing on other investors and by owning something which then got part of a takeover um sort of thing um like he owned general foods and right and some some other ones like that so a couple different actually two different food ones i think um but and then i also think that um size was the other issue so so it's very hard to be an activist in large companies people do it now but it's this kind of activism that exists now didn't exist before which is just to create a lot of publicity Hmm. while having a meaningless state it's like they're running a presidential campaign yeah like it's like so you could buy up a few you know not now but years ago i mean now it's too big but years ago you could buy a little bit of microsoft or something but you'd never be able to buy a lot of microsoft mm-hmm. so you know what could you do i mean buffett berkshire is big enough that if they wanted to they could i mean he could have bought enough apple to be you know a very very major shareholder in apple and then with his reputation everything could have sure gotten things he wanted done I think the biggest thing is it's easier to bet on the status quo being the way you want it than to get involved in activism stuff. And Buffett has had some things where he's been active in a company. Um, he basically replaced the CEO of Coke. So, I mean, he told the CEO, you're out mm-hmm. um, privately. Salomon Brothers. Yeah. He got involved as chairman there. He didn't vote one way or the other on a compensation plan. My favorite part about Salomon Brothers and the uh, uh, snowball was him and Charlie were checking out the company and Charlie's like, this is the company you want to invest in Warren. And they said, he just kind of was like, "Mm -hmm." like he did say, you know, his way of saying like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. This is it. (laughs) So I don't think they like getting involved with that, but he got a special deal by doing that. But I think also learning from that is the special deals that worked out and the ones that didn't, for the most part, he could have just bought the common stock. Like if he, if he was right about the business and everything, he would have known better. I think he could have bought a lot more Gillette, for instance, and done better mm-hmm. than doing all the different special deals he did. So people complain about like, oh, he part of his record's built on these special deals and everything. You know, the same thing even like, even now with he did GE and um, uh, Goldman Sachs and things like that. But if you had just done Bank of America... You know, just easier. And you could have just bought it as a stock anyway. So, I mean, you get some benefits from that with the things about warrants and stuff. But if you're right about the business, it's hard to protect yourself with these other forms of security and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. In the Joel Greenblatt class notes, yeah, he talked about how uh, Gotham 
did one activist situation okay. and it was their last. I think he said that they ran a proxy contest and won. I think they made money, uh-huh. but he just said afterwards, like just the fighting and the headache, it just, it wasn't even worth it. Yeah. So it can be very expensive. We, we mentioned, uh, Luby's before, right? Yeah. I think they said they spent 1.7 million on their proxy one. Huh. Um, something like that. Total of their costs associated with that were pretty high. Um, which is not insignificant. Um, considering that it wasn't like, if you look it up and stuff, I don't know where that money went. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about these. It's not like they bought $2 million worth of ads to air and things. I mean, that's usually what you see when you look at these proxy things and how much goes to lawyers and stuff. But that's also the thing with lawyers. I'm always impressed by that. When company gets involved in litigation, we were talking about a company that, you know, wasted a huge amount of their market cap over 10 years on litigation. Um, that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. They won some of the cases. They lost some of the cases. On average, the lawyers got paid, and they didn't really make much of anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it probably had negative value over time for that. So that's the harmful part of it. Um, I think the activism makes sense when you're um, replacing someone. That's the only real case that I can think of it. So, it's Like members of the board, or are you talking like executives? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. members of the board slash executives replacing who controls the company. Mm-hmm. So a takeover of the company, I think, makes sense. Um, that's the. I mean, I think that's the real way to achieve activism. Like the modern kind of thing, I don't believe anything's actually getting done. I think what they're doing is drawing a lot of attention to a stock, so mm-hmm. maybe that's creating something, more publicity for it and stuff. But, oh, I got them to pay out a dividend, change their dividend policy, or buy back stock, or do this, or whatever the way you achieve change is by replacing who's in there mm-hmm. and then the entire philosophy of it changes. So like uh, we mentioned the bank Hingham HIFS, the ticker that one, they replaced the management and then they ran it for 30 years. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you get a totally different result from that. Sure. Uh, Buffett, you'll remember raided Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sanborn map, Dempster mill, Berkshire Hathaway. He, Sanborn map, he got them all to agree to it finally. Yeah. But he was the only major shareholder on the board and mm. stuff. So, um, but Dempster Mill, he basically bought it all and then sold the company effectively. And then, um, and then Berkshire, he threw them out, mm-hmm. he threw out uh, the Stanton. So, yeah, it's that's interesting. a lot of rating. Yeah. And that was what his last, I mean, last rating yeah, was Berkshire and, Hathaway. And Graham Newman is more than you might think. He, his was something with like a whole town, wasn't it? Graham? When he, he had an activist situation, something with pipelines or something. Yeah, Northern Pipeline. Yeah. 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 Well, Northern Pipeline, he was involved in the other pipelines too, but Northern Pipeline was to sell out, um, to, to basically, effectively, how Northern Pipeline worked is that he convinced the Rockefeller Foundation to tell the pipeline companies that they wanted them to pay out their securities over time, which is what they did. So he had a fight with them, he won some board seats. And then more importantly, though, their biggest shareholder, the Rockefeller Foundation, told them about a change in policy going forward, which, again, is kind of like the activism that can really get things done, mm-hmm. which you don't see all the time. But like I was saying with Buffett, Buffett replaced the CEO of Coke just by telling he didn't go to the well, he didn't hold a board meeting. He and one other board member just told the CEO, you don't have our support. And so he could go and fight it to the board and try to stay on. Yeah. But in many cases, when that happens, you, you just quit. Did it, did it, yeah, I was going to say he typical Buffett. I'm sure he said, look, we could do this hard way and could be And I mean, like it was yeah. pretty much understood. Like you could either resign or we could, you know, actually mm-hmm. do this embarrassing, you know, embarrassingly for you. Yeah. And so, you know, those kinds of changes and those changes do happen in companies all the time where behind the scenes, they basically tell people you're leaving 
uh, and then they do. And that never comes on the press release. And so that's just so-and-so resigns, you know? I'm kind of curious. Why do you think there was never any activism in Washington Post? Well, Washington Post, there couldn't be activism because of the two classes of stock. Got it. Okay. So that's why he probably came in more like a gentleman. You can't have activism in Google and stuff. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Facebook. Same thing. There's A and B stock. So those are, yeah. I mean, uh, can you have activism around? I don't know. Because in the giant companies, can you have activism just by buying up stock and then embarrassing them? Probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably you could buy up stock and say, you know, if you don't do something, we'll reveal our consultants' findings on what you're doing with privacy and stuff and whatever. And will they pay you to go away and stuff? Maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are things in place now where it would be the kind of green mail things that you're talking about you can't do. But I mean, you could get attention to the stock, I guess. If yeah, that's what which you is want. kind of like a self-fulfilling and you thing. Get attention. Activists also get attention for themselves. So maybe by getting attention for themselves, they increase their uh, assets under management over time. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a. Uh, I don't think it's a strategy that scales very well. All the activist targets that I see that are attractive and stuff are very small. I don't think it does well as a very big one, and yet. I think it attracts a lot of assets mm-hmm. to that kind of thing. But yeah, like microcaps type stuff has a much, much higher opportunity for activism than the kinds of things that you're, you know, like big cap stocks, especially because you can't buy as much of those. And because I don't think it's effective in high institutional ownership things. This is complicated, but like someone talked about, there was an activist in collector's universe. The problem that I saw with that is collector's universe is a very high um, share turnover, um, kind of high float mm-hmm. sort of stock for its size. So the difference is a large number of institutions might own it. And it's very hard to get institutions to vote for a um, slate of directors who are opposing the current management. It's much easier to target companies where it's mostly owned by individuals. So if you target companies mostly owned by individuals, small funds, things like that, you could have a lot more success. So things that have almost no float, you can have more success with. Now you could buy up a ton of the company if there's a lot of float that's the other point of it is that you you know there's a lot of it floats and you can buy up a lot of it um but to do that it would be pretty hard to do in bigger companies because you need a lot of assets to pull it off so i think that smaller companies that have low float and you saw that because kewl we talked about yeah a shareholder who had about the same amount of stock as insiders who presumably would be totally opposed so you had a situation i would say where it wasn't far from being that the two sides had sure votes or that they would presumably count on for like personal reasons um, that were about equal. Mm-hmm. So you needed an actual majority of the um, sort of unaffiliated people to vote with you. Um, they won. So I think that'd be very hard to do in a big stock. Like if you on a giant mega cap stock, if you had the same situation, I think you'd lose that vote. In fact, Barnes and Noble, um, they insiders i mean outsiders who were sure they were going to vote against it probably slightly outnumbered insiders and yet they you know so they managed to get close to 30 uh, close to 40 percent of the stock or something with about 40 percent opposed to them um they slightly lost it it was about 50 50 basically um so you know i think it's very very hard to do at scale so all the ones you read about in the news and stuff are the ones that I think it's really hard to do. Uh, and I think it, as a strategy, I also think it doesn't work. It doesn't make much sense compared to what it did in the eighties and stuff, because these companies aren't worth more. None of these companies they're rating are worth more to a private owner mm-hmm. than the company is now in the public market. Whereas in the eighties and through the seventies, 
when a lot of this activism started. So from 75 to certainly 75 to 85, let's say it was constantly the case that you could, if you could have taken over the company and sold it off for parts, the parts would have definitely been worth more auctioned off separately than it was valued for in the public markets. And there's no big stocks that I see where that's the case, like none today. That just doesn't happen. Public market values are yeah. much higher than private market values. Uh-huh. So, you know, it just doesn't make as much sense to me that way. And then there's other things as well. Like imagine if you were going to run a proxy contest against a company or something mm-hmm. and spend, you know, so much money to do it and then you end up losing. It's like, you know, what do you do with that money? I mean, that's a loss for you. You know, sometimes the company reimburses you potentially, maybe, I don't know, part of the settlement, but there's just other things that you could do. I mean, when Ackman ran against ADP, mm-hmm. I'm sure he spent a lot of money to run that campaign. Yeah. And, you know, then you don't get the change that you want, that's, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's a different strategy. I get it. But even with him with Herbalife, right? I know he spent like on lawyer fees and all that stuff. I mean, probably nine figures, they said. Yeah. I mean, you can divide it into it to see how much it adds to your cost basis. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, for very big companies, it'll be lower than for the small ones. The proxy contest for like micro caps and stuff will be incredibly expensive versus how much you buy. I've seen situations where someone spent well over 10% of their investment um, on just the proxy mm-hmm. campaign. Yeah. So like, but that sounds like a lot. Like, okay, you spent hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever. But, you know, if you're effective, let's say you have a 50-50 chance of winning, will winning create more than 20% value in the stock? If mm-hmm. it will, then that would make sense, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying activists can't create value. I think activists can create value if they take over the company. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I'm just saying that the kind of activism that's like meet these demands yeah. tends not to be able to do that um, because I think the demands aren't strong enough to actually create much difference in value for the company. There's been some um, academic research stuff that suggests a few things. One that, two things basically. If you increase liquidity and you improve corporate governance, those are the two things that would um, improve the value of the stock with the business staying the same. So if you have a stock and yet you can convince management or the board or whatever to create a more liquid um, market for the stock. So bringing attention or well, you're saying like actually like actual stock, issue shares, got um, merge with something while issuing stock, have the insider sell out to break up their block into smaller pieces that people can buy, doing all sorts of other things, you know, uplisting to whatever thing will create more that way, getting market maker activity yeah. in your, you know, whatever. Um, so they'll increase the liquidity in the stock. And then uh, two is improving corporate governance. Now the improving corporate governance thing I think is hard to study. Academics claim like improving corporate governance leads to higher returns or whatever. But I think corporate governance sometimes is like a um, a uh, euphemism for strong corporate governance means weak takeover defenses. And um, weak corporate governance means strong takeover defenses. So in the case of like we talked about Avalon Holdings, academics looking at that would be like, oh, well, they de-staggered their board and they got rid of the like classes of A and B shares or whatever. And, you know, yeah. and that's what causes this to happen. When in reality... He doesn't, uh, the main shareholder doesn't own a lot of the stock. So without the A and B stock, if his, which is uh, a case where the, the land is worth more than the company, basically. So it could be rated. Uh-huh. And it's not a very big stock. So as soon as he didn't have A and B shares, he would be rated. That Avalon would be rated. And so opening yourself up to a raid 
drives up the stock. Yeah. Uh huh. And so that more to me is like takeover defenses lower the value of a company. Now, some people there are people who claim takeover defenses improve the value because the board will negotiate. That's the whole argument for the poison pill is the board will negotiate from a position of strength to sell the entire company. Got it. You know, that's uh-huh. the the whole case for do poison pills add value or take away value, and you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Peter Lynch never got an A. He was never uh, an activist of any sort. I'm trying to think. I mean, no, Buffett. Well, he really couldn't be in his. Fund. What about Munger with his close end front funds? I don't no. know. He oh just, yeah, yeah, close end funds. Yes, yes, close end funds. Yeah. But would he force them to liquidate the funds, the close end funds, when you invest in them? Well, I mean, oh. Well, there's two kind of ways. One, you can force them to liquidate, or two, you can liquidate them. <laughs> I mean, if you tell if if you tell management, yeah. you're either get, yeah. So I would say either one. So if you tell a company you have to liquidate, sell off, break up, whatever, or you tell them you have to leave, the company can stay, but you can leave. I'd say either one of those are that kind of activism. So did he take over investment decisions and stuff? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he took over investment decisions. So, um, yeah. And that's, there's tons of examples of closed-end funds that would be rated if it wasn't for that. And mm. in companies that are effectively closed-end funds, we've talked about some on this podcast, but effectively, if there wasn't a way for people to control it, you know, people would rate it. I mean, I would look at it and say, okay, well, that makes sense. You should take it over and then, you know, distribute it or invest in anything else or do whatever, um, usually because they have very high expenses and they're terrible investors and things like that. So mm. there's been a few cases with that. I can think of, like, some funds where they're actually um have high expenses and in are bad investors or something they're they're rare but they exist and so yeah they're they sell well below what they could be you know liquidated for in like a day mm-hmm. yeah and it's just because of the protections they have in place from being um you know having takeover defenses so one thing people might want to think about then with activism stuff is what kind of things could be could be targets of activists Right. So some things can't be. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ones I find fascinating. And we've talked about that. I feel like sometimes you get activists in stocks where they effectively can't do anything. And I find that odd. Mm-hmm. But so if there's large shareholders in the stock. Well, which really just is f- to bring attention to the stock probably then. Right. Is it? I mean, I don't know if you can't do anything. I think sometimes they think the board will talk to them. Really? With owning just if they can't do anything, I mean, you don't think the board will just be like, all right, well, we don't really care. I think so. So for instance, if someone owns 25% of a stock, okay, 25, I get that. I'm saying if you, if you own like 5%, you try to make, you know, there's a member, the chairman of the board owns 25% of the company. Okay. And you buy 7%. Okay. Okay. So like, are you, what are you going to accomplish? Nothing. Well, I don't know. Some people do that. I mean, so is it nothing? I don't know. So if what if you own twenty five percent and somebody came in and you know bought seven percent of your company, you would you wouldn't even think twice about it. Buffett wouldn't even think twice about it. Well, I don't know about that. I think I would think about it. And I think Buffett would think about it. But I don't think that you owning the seven percent is why I'd think about it. I if someone put a ton of money into a, a company that you controlled of their money and bet big on, mm-hmm. yeah. you'd be happy to talk to them. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's true. But if they wanted you to do things you don't want to do, you wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So buying up a bunch of a, st- a stock to, say, get on the board or to have some influence over people and stuff, I believe that could happen if you were on the same page about some things. 
right? Mm-hmm. So Buffett had significant influence at some of the places he invested. Washington Post, he yeah, had sure. huge influence yeah, on it. Absolutely. But he had it by specifically not voting shares and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, Cap Cities, even when he didn't have an official relationship there and stuff, they did a lot of the sorts of things that he talked about and stuff. Because people believed in his advice or whatever, they, they took... they valued his advice, right? And what he was saying. So do I believe that someone might change some of their opinions about things and stuff if you were a big investor and you were bringing something to them they weren't necessarily opposed to? Yeah, yeah, you could have influence over things and stuff. Sure, I could believe that. But that's different than like thinking you're gonna buy up a bunch of the stock and um, cause them to change their approach to something that they otherwise don't wanna do. The, I mean, a lot of times it's, I mean, I would say many, many times what the activist actually wants is for you to sell the company or put the company in play. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily yeah. sell it, but mm-hmm. they could sell out after that. But that's effectively what they want is you to sell the company. What type of activism do you see in micro cap land, small cap land? Improving corporate governance is a big one. So getting rid of crooks mm-hmm. is a very big one, yeah. That would make the most sense is getting rid of crooks. Um, that would have the most help on the stock. Other ones that I see are probably more like, yeah, uh, yeah, that's the main one that I see. I would say that. But the other, the consider strategic alternatives, so mm-hmm. try to sell the company, is probably the most common thing that I see people push for. Um, yeah. I wonder if, you know, the best sort of uh, metric, if you will, to find these companies uh, is the acquirers multiple. I know Toby, you know, that's sure. typically, I mean, that's kind of like the genesis of it, if you will, right? It's looking right. for these companies that can be liquidated potentially. Yeah, so there's two approaches. One is you could use the choir's multiple, so like EBITDA, EBITDA type stuff. But the other one that you could use is the price to book, the assets. Mm. So just different ways about looking at the assets. The, as an example, there are insurance companies that could be liquidated for more than they sell for, life insurance companies, but they're controlled by family. So I can think of two like right away. They're not even that small. Uh, they range from tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars in market cap. And literally, you could liquidate them um, and the shareholders could receive more than, than is invested than, uh, the, they could receive quite a bit more than the market cap just by shutting down the company. Mm-hmm. It, you would just run off what they have right now and sell it off over time and stuff. And yeah, it could be done in both cases. In both cases, there's family that has, um, positions at the company and stuff and own some stock, but not so much stock that it makes sense for them to liquidate it. Um, I mean, if you own like everything and it's all you have in the world and all that, you might consider like if someone comes to you to buy your company, you might sell out. But if you own smaller amounts, but have like large management connections and stuff in terms of what you're being paid, then you wouldn't. I mean, there's companies that I've looked at and stuff and thought, oh, well, could we do something with this company? We have a fund and whatever. And, you know, and the problem usually is no, because management is probably too attached to their positions Mm -hmm. and not attached enough to the stock that they own. So they might own a million dollars worth of stock, but they're being paid $500,000 a year. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. th- that's pretty hard to do something about that. Sure. And so there might be a lot more attached to their salaries that way. And it gets even more complicated when there's multiple people in the family and stuff that way. So mm-hmm. we've talked about that where there's people who have, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of family members there. There's ones where there's four or five family members each making a few hundred thousand, so it sounds like a big deal when someone says, oh, they own, they have a million dollars worth of stock in the company or something. But if you have half a dozen members of your family yeah, on the sure. payroll at a few hundred thousand dollars a year, then that's really worth more to you than the stock that you have in it. And the thing people have to remember is 
you can always sell the company if you're now not not always it depends on the situation of how the company's made up and everything but often a ceo family member certainly a controlled company doesn't care where the stock trades because it could always get a different price than it wants like yeah. i point this out about like people talk about hunter douglas and they're like well doesn't the family care about where the stock trades and stuff family owns like 80 percent or more of the company um if you own 80 percent of the company you can have a negotiated sale for the company that's two times or three times the value of mm-hmm. the company in the stock market because your competitors or whoever wants to acquire you in the industry doesn't look at the stock price as having any relevance. If you want to get into curtains and shades and stuff and you're, you know, whatever company you are in, like say Amazon decides, oh, we want to sell curtains and shades online and whatever, and we need to own this. It doesn't do them any good to own 19% of the company. Sure. They want to control the company. Mm-hmm. And so the the stock price is irrelevant to them, mm-hmm. you know? So I think a lot of times we see situations like that where it's hard because management is in there and unlikely to um, make changes and stuff. And to me, that's the biggest issue. There's lots of companies that I would find where I'd say, I would buy this company if you got rid of management. There's not many where I would say anything else. So I know activists have all sorts of other demands. Mm-hmm. I can't think that that would like really change my opinion about buying the stock or not. But there are, I could think of a dozen companies or something where I'd be like, I would be willing to consider buying this tomorrow if they just throw out the management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for being a subscriber to the app. Uh, we appreciate all the support. We definitely want to make your subscription worth it. So we are going to be doing um, longer, just kind of more less scripted okay. podcasts just like this every Saturday. And it's going to be a premium podcast just for you. And we definitely appreciate all of the support. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I, and we will see you in the next podcast.